is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. After months of talks, Kroger reached a deal this past October to acquire Albertsons, a mega-merger of the nation's two largest traditional brick-and-mortar grocery store chains. Kroger executives have said they expect the sale to be completed early next year, but the agreement faces regulatory scrutiny and legal challenges. Joining me to talk about that and what this mega-merger could mean for Kroger employees and customers are University of Cincinnati College of Law Corporate Law Center co-director Felix Chang. Welcome, Professor Chang. Hi, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. And WCPO9 I-Team reporter Dan Monk. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thanks for having me, Lucy. The University of Cincinnati is a financial supporter of Cincinnati Public Radio, and you can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or emailing talk at wvxu.org. Felix, can you start out by talking to us a little bit about the the background of this deal? What are the kind of basics of this whole thing? Sure, Lucy. So the basics you can find in a set of regulatory filings that were made by both companies with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, Both Kroger and Albertsons had filed 8Ks on October 14th, and the day before there was a merger agreement that was negotiated, so dating to October 13th, that's appended to those pair of 8Ks. Um, The background is that Kroger is going to be paying $34.10 per share uh, for Albertsons, and there's a closing date set for January 2024. Um, What's interesting to note is that there's a termination fee that Kroger could pay. It's $600 million, so the termination doesn't go forth. And in the section in the merger agreement, there is a set of covenants, uh, regulatory covenants. So that suggests that both sides anticipate some significant regulatory issues that they have to cooperate about to, to get through. Talk to us a little bit more about what some of those regulatory issues could be. They, these companies own nearly 5,000 stores combined, so this is, a, this is a big deal. Yeah, you've got the nation's second largest grocery retailer buying the nation's fourth largest grocery retailer. So it's a merger, and a merger is whenever you've got two independent companies that come under some sort of common control. And so the regulatory issues are that you've got federal antitrust regulators and some state agencies like state attorneys general who can um, do some investigations. But what you worry when you have a merger of this size is twofold. One of that is that you've got a market now that's got one less significant competitor. So you've got fewer competitors and there's a greater propensity for some sort of anti-competitive conduct and violation of the Sherman Act. Um, You also worry about... a successor who has greater market power and can unilaterally, for instance, raise prices. Mm. Dan Reuters reported last month that the two companies are contemplating the sale of between 250 to 300 stores to address some of those regulatory concerns. Talk to us about that number and and what that typically means for for employees and for customers. Well, um, that's a reduced number from what the companies originally estimated. They said up to 375 stores might be sold. And they were describing this because they were uh, cognizant of the FTC's review here. Uh, Like traditionally, as I understand it from talking to uh, folks about this, uh, traditionally the FTC uh, has worried about market concentration, how many stores you own in a particular city and what your market share is in that city. And so I think Kroger and Albertsons went into this with the idea that they were going to have to get rid of some stores in cities where they have a lot of stores. And those cities would include places like Chicago, Phoenix, Portland, 
Seattle and uh, in Southern California, where the market concentration would be the highest under this merger. What's interesting about that uh, recent disclosure is that uh, they've obviously talked to the FTC, um, and and the FTC has uh, asked for additional detail. And so now comes word that they're looking to sell a lesser number of stores, and that could be a good sign that Kroger is going to win FTC clearance. Um, a lot of politics involved in this, and so it's a much more complicated you know, scenario than just will it be confined to a, a market concentration uh, analysis. But that's, that's probably a positive sign, that the fact that they're going to sell fewer stores than expected. Yeah. And what is when when all the stores get sold in that in that way, hundreds of stores, whether it's 375 or 250 or 300, what is the impact typically on on consumers? Uh, well, it, <clears throat> on consumers, that's a good question because uh, as I understand it, these these stores are going to be offered to investors and if investors buy these 300 stores, they'd have 300 stores to operate in in, in multiple cities. My guess is that that company will be smaller, less able to compete against the the giant that is Kroger Albertsons. And so um, I'm not sure if it will have an impact on consumers. Uh, I think Kroger and Albertsons would continue to be the dominant uh, grocer in those markets, uh, even though they've unloaded some stores. Mm. I I can speak to the consumer impact a little bit. I think there's a great concern that what you have with store divestitures is you, you may well have communities that have no grocery stores whatsoever. So it can exacerbate food deserts um, in certain cities and in certain rural areas as well. Um, antitrust over the years has become really focused on consumer welfare. And this is a really interesting case where I think there are pretty clear consumer welfare implications where if you have stores that are being sold um, and to buyers who potentially don't operate, then you could well emerge with a landscape in certain geographic markets where you don't have any available grocery stores. Mm. And is that because they're going to get rid of the stores that they view as least profitable, essentially? Part of that. So part of that is going to be driven by the profit calculus, but part of that is going to be a divestiture that may be driven by the FTC. So um, as Dan mentioned, the fact that it's a reduced number of divestitures may pretend a really good sign that the FTC might allow this to go forth. When you're under merger review, the FTC could either have it go forth, uh, could sue to block it completely, or come to some sort of a consent decree where there are some structural reforms like divestitures. And that seems to be where we're headed. I think from the consumer welfare standpoint, um, a lot of watchdogs are really concerned that you are going to wind up with this behemoth that's the second largest grocery store in the nation that won't operate grocery stores in many communities. And you mentioned consumer welfare. Is the FTC focusing on the question of food deserts these days? Is that going to be an important piece of this calculation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because the chair who's at the helm of the FTC now um, is really identified with the progressive left of antitrust. And so uh, over the last few decades, antitrust has come to be seen as revolving narrowly around this consumer welfare standard, which is to say, well, when there are mergers, when there are vertical integrations, we're principally concerned with what is the output and what is the price effect on consumers narrowly. So if you've got, for instance, digital platforms that operate in what's called zero price markets where they're not charging consumers anything, there's very little immediate impact on consumer welfare. But what's happened over the last few years with the rise of 
uh, the progressive left and antitrust is there's a there's a greater attention to kind of non-traditional and non-economic effects. So to view welfare more broadly, not to just look at output and price. Interesting. We're talking about Kroger's deal to acquire the Albertsons grocery store chain with University of Cincinnati College of Law Corporate Law Center co-director Felix Chang and WCPO 9 I-Team reporter Dan Monk. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or emailing talk at wvxu.org. Dan, you you mentioned this a little bit before, but can you remind us what Albertson's footprint is? We don't have Albertsons around here, obviously, but where do they operate most typically? Um, They are strongest uh, on the West Coast, California, uh, on up through Washington State. Um, And they have some some stores on the Northeast. And I think the rationale that Kroger pursued when following this deal is that there was less of an overlap than they really expected. Kroger's very strong in the in the Midwest and um, and Albertson's competes more heavily with them on the coasts. And so I think Kroger uh, thought that this was an advantage for them to uh, gain more locations and have a more more of a national uh, footprint by acquiring Albertson stores. Mm. Did you want to add to that, Felix? Uh, yeah, it, I mean it, it, it's seen as geographically complementary. The only thing that I'll add to that is that this is uh, what's kind of a a more traditional way of thinking about the relevant geographic market. So when you're thinking about market power when two companies come together, we've become so accustomed to thinking about it in terms of a a, a national geographic market. Um, But for grocery store, the geographic market arguably is much more at a local level, much more small and regional, perhaps can be circumscribed to even smaller than that. So I think that this really presents a really interesting case that can force the FTC to articulate more clearly what the relevant geographic market is. And Felix, this has been described as the biggest U.S. supermarket merger ever. Um, I guess, first of all, are there mergers of supermarket chains that are at all comparable that you can think of? And, And with as big as this is, how long could antitrust clearance take? Yeah. So to answer the second part of the question, I think the two parties anticipate that it's going to take at least until January 2024. So they anticipate that, you know, that's the deadline that's set by the merger agreement and could could be extended. Um, this is, to my knowledge, the biggest. Uh, there are some antecedents that kind of come close, but not even quite exactly. I mean, you've got Whole Foods being purchased by Amazon, but that's entirely different. That was more like you can think of Amazon as playing in a very different market. So that's an integration that's more vertical. Um, You know, Albertsons had purchased Safeway some years ago, and that was quite a large uh, merger. And that itself had significant consequences. You know, some of the consequences you think about are efficiencies that are gained. That is to say that, you know, maybe these are two companies that are kind of bloated, that are operating in markets that they shouldn't necessarily. But the consequence of that is where you have gains in efficiencies, oftentimes that's going to mean store closures and layoffs. Mm. Well, we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. And later in the program, we'll hear how some renters in Sadamsville are being forced to leave their homes. This is Cincinnati Edition. 
This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We continue our conversation about Kroger's deal to acquire Albertsons with University of Cincinnati College of Law Corporate Law Center co-director Felix Chang and WCPO 9i team reporter Dan Monk. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or emailing talk at wvxu.org. So one of the great benefits of having another journalist on the panel is that Dan had a great question for Felix during our break. So, Dan, I'm going to hand it over to you. All right. I love having a professor at my disposal. This is awesome. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about the FTC and how uh, it, how broadly you think they're going to review this, because they've heard from suppliers and from rival grocery chains saying uh, this, this company is going to have too much power. Yeah to uh, to get pricing and favorable terms when they buy things from us um, we've heard from unions who've right. said that they're going right. to they're going to cut jobs and they're not going to honor you know the pledge to increase wages when they when they take over and then we've also heard from people uh, complaining about the issue you raised earlier, food deserts. How broadly do you think the FTC is really going to look at this or are they going to confine themselves to the traditional approach that we've seen before from the FTC? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Dan. I think that the this FTC is perhaps more poised than, you know, FTCs and many of the prior administrations to look much more broadly than just effect on output and price. Um, and that's for several reasons. One is that I know that there are members uh, of the FTC who are really interested in the nexus of antitrust and race. And so when we're talking about things like food desert, there's a really close connection between antitrust and race. One of the reasons why you have historically had food deserts in many communities is in addition to these racially restrictive covenants that we knew that had kind of driven white flight, um, some grocery stores had operated where if they were to exit a market, they would have a covenant, it's called the Scorch Earth Covenant, that would prevent future stores from operating. Therefore, you have uh, a food desert, oftentimes concentrated in already underserved and marginalized populations. So that's one concern. The additional concern is that we know that there's been increased pressure on all federal agencies to think more about how they can address inflation. And we know that the chair, Lena Khan, has been looking at, for instance, practices of Whole Foods um, and of Walmart uh, that have perhaps driven inflation. And the final reason why I think this is particularly interesting is that, again, chair Lena Khan is has had a series of really influential law review articles where she's written about uh, what's understood, what's called monopolization. Um, it's under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. This is unilateral behavior by firms with market power. And so if you think about this is kind of, a, this is kind of an analogizing Kroger to perhaps some sort of a platform, like a digital platform, where you've got this grocery store business that already operates on thin margins, and that's not where the money is. But where the markups can be really had is if you're also involved in production and then you resell the product. You see that Kroger already does that with Simple Truth products. And my, my family often buys Simple Truth and Simple Truth organic products. But, I mean, if there's an analogy to be had where you can think of a grocery store as some sort of a platform, it can leverage its dominance and, you know, its connection with consumers um, to sell products that already manufacturers at a markup. That's why I think you've got kind of relate, uh, related issues why you have producers who are really concerned because you walk away after this merger with some really large buyers. That's the flip side of a monopoly. It's called a monopsony where you've got large buyers with market powers. They tend to drive prices down. Mm. 
Can I ask another question? I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess so, Dan. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you mentioned Lena Khan. Yeah. She's under fire now yep. uh, from some in Congress for her activist approach. Yeah. Will this impact Kroger's ability to win uh, clearance? You know, it, it's it's really hard to say. I think that is a matter of procedure. There's a lot greater scrutiny on what's happening at the FTC now. There was a you know, a really heated dissension by uh, by by one of the commissioners who had left, who had criticized Lena Khan of abuse of process. I think that you know the FTC is certainly aware that there's increased scrutiny from Congress. Um, this could well play to Kroger's advantage. It, it's hard to forecast, but these are all greater kind of procedural issues that are now swirling about the FTC. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the legal challenges now. Dan, last month, a group of 25 consumers filed a, a lawsuit in federal court to block the merger and terminate the $4 billion special dividend payment by Albertsons. Tell us what that's all about. Well, they're arguing a lot of the things we've just talked about. They're arguing that Kroger and Albertsons will use their newfound power, their market power, to increase prices for their grocery stores, decrease the quality of food, eliminate jobs, close stores, and offer less choice for consumers. All of that—that's a quote from their from their lawsuit. And Kroger has not yet responded to this lawsuit. I just checked it today, and um, they have until April, I think, to to file their defense. But this is the kind of approach that the FTC could take if they were to, or the Justice Department, if it were to sue uh, to block this merger. And you mentioned the lawsuit says the deal would stifle competition, reduce consumer choices, raise prices, lead to job cuts. How likely are those outcomes based on what we've seen in the past? I mean, Kroger would argue it's not likely at all. They're, they're saying that, uh, and they've said from the beginning, that they anticipate additional cost savings, that they're going to reinvest into lower prices. I think a half billion dollars in new investments in lower prices and a billion dollars to increase wages. And they're very much painting this as a deal that's very friendly to consumers and to their workforce. Mm. Felix, what do you think the implications are for Kroger locally? I mean, we don't have Albertson stores here, so that's not an issue. But what yeah. about jobs at the headquarters? What What do you think the implications are there? Yeah, Dan and I were just talking about this before the show, <laughs> but I think on balance, it's really good for Cincinnati. It's probably going to mean that Kroger's corporate headquarters is going to lead to growth in Cincinnati. Um, to what degree that's offset by losses elsewhere, I, I, I think it's much more difficult to forecast. But, you know, as a Cincinnatian, I'm... I'm I think it'll be good for the city. What do you think, Dan? More jobs. <laughs> more <laughs> That's jobs. What, yeah, and more investment. I mean, Kroger has always made their biggest investments in their hometown. Uh, their digital platform that was invented here, um, you know, is a major example of that. But they have, uh, you know, factories, manufacturing facilities here. They have research facilities. And um, all of that would grow if Kroger were bigger. And do these headquarter jobs tend to be better paying jobs? Yes. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, there. Okay. Research technology. Um, these, these these are where Kroger is making their biggest investments right now, and these are very high paying jobs. Mm. Agreed. What are the implications for employee unions? Would this make Kroger more difficult to negotiate with, less difficult to negotiate with? Do either of you have thoughts on that? I mean, I I I don't know. Um, there are scholars who've written about the effect on unions of when you have greater consolidation. Um, I don't recall exactly what that scholarship says. I think on balance, it's, I mean, it's, it's not as easy for unions to deal with. That's my sense of the scholarship. My sense is that Kroger, 
um, does whatever it has to do to not have work disruptions. And mm. so uh, oftentimes that means deals that, um, you know, unions can live with. One reason local UFCW has really not spoken much about this is they have a fresh agreement that they're pretty happy with. And so I think some of these unions in um, in Washington State and California and Colorado have gone on record against this uh, uh, merger. Those uh, have uh, those people have uh, Kroger and Albertsons employees, and they're worried about what's going to happen when the two combine. Um, but in markets where you know Kroger has a strong union relationship, like it does in Cincinnati, you don't hear as much of that uh, complaining. Hmm. What about public reaction? Um, there have been boycotts against Kroger, um, you know, famously led by the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Do you ha- have we heard much from the public about this yet? I don't. I don't recall that I have. I mean, I think to the degree that state AGs reflect public opinion. I think there are some AGs, I think I saw in Colorado that are doing deep dives and investigations into the merger. Um, Other than that, other than uh, in the press, some consumer groups and unions saying that this is going to lead to decreased innovation in consumer choice um, and some deleterious effects on labor. I, I, I haven't encountered much more. No. Most of the opposition has come from unions and attorneys general. Mm. And Dan, how would this position Kroger, if this deal goes through, to compete with the likes of Walmart, Costco, Target, Amazon, these these companies that aren't necessarily traditional, you know, bricks and mortar grocery stores, but are selling a heck of a lot of groceries? Yeah. I, um, I know that's a key element that Rodney McMullen pointed to in the uh, Senate hearings when they held uh, an anti, the antitrust panel uh, asked CEOs of both companies uh, about a lot of these questions. And, um, you know, what Rodney McMullen says is they're not just competing against other grocery chains, they're competing against Amazon and Walmart and, you know, much bigger companies, and they do need uh, to be bigger in order to hold their own against larger competitors. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think this positions Kroger to compete uh, much more on an equal footing with Walmart and Amazon. Mm. So what are both of you looking for next? What, do you, what will you be watching with this deal? Uh, Felix, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, I'm going to be watching to see what more divestitures Kroger might announce. So that'll give us a signal of how swiftly this might proceed. Um I'd be interested. We can follow the regulatory filings to see if the merger agreement is going to be, the 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 closing date is going to be extended. That might give us some sense from an antitrust perspective of what the obstacles are and whether they can be overcome um, between now and January 2024. How about you, Dan? I'm going to be watching Felix. I'm going to... <laughs> Yeah, you all can probably see Felix on Channel 9 sometime yeah. soon. <laughs> all of our fun. listeners out there. Yeah. Dan, are there filings? Are you watching this lawsuit? What are, what I'll are you probably watch the uh, the FTC has open hearings or open uh, meetings where people can comment. I'll watch uh, the, the next one to see if there's any Kroger comments. And I'll be watching the court filings in this new California case to see what Kroger's response is. And I'm also curious to know if Kroger's uh, issue with uh, payroll mistakes, they've been sued in multiple uh, class action lawsuits. I- I'm curious to see if that's going to interv- kind of uh, make its way into this analysis of whether Kroger has too much market power. 
Well, and you were talking about the politics before, and and certainly um, there's always something to watch with politics in our nation's capital right mm-hmm. now. Um, do you expect this divided power with Republicans controlling the House, Democrats controlling the Senate? Is that going to figure? You're both nodding very yes, vigorously. I, I think so. so. I think isn't Jim Jordan already calling for an investigation of the FTC, and so that's going to make. Uh, it very difficult for Lena Khan to be extremely aggressive on um, this deal and others, uh, you know, going forward. So, yeah, I think there's already been a lot of scrutiny from the Republicans on the FTC. Um, what I think one thing that's playing to the FTC advantage, though, is to the extent that they can frame this as consumer friendly and having an effect on inflation and on prices. Um, you know, it 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 could it could give them some sort of a buffer. Mm. Well, I've been talking with University of Cincinnati College of Law Corporate Law Center co-director Felix Chang and WCPO9 I-Team reporter Dan Monk. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. Up next, we'll hear how some renters in Saddamsville are being forced to leave their homes. This is Cincinnati Edition. <laughs> 